So we get into this kind of circle of hope. And that's the thing we want to pass on to the next generation. That's the thing that we want this community to take into this land that's full of Canaanites, that's full of danger, that's full of idol worshipers, that's full of misunderstandings about who God is. That they would have the character to endure suffering in a way that holds out hope in the glory of God. Chapters 12 through 26. Deuteronomy is a book that's made up of um, several sermons just kind of back to back to back. He gives sort of an introduction in the opening chapters. He kind of lays out his, his thesis, his basic thing of what he's thinking in chapters 5 to 11. And then in 12 to 26, he gets into kind of the meat of what he wants to say. And then he wraps it up toward the end. We have just moved out of that central meaty section. Of this is how you're supposed to live in the land. Um, and so that's sort of what we're reflecting on today. Before we get there, I... Um, you know, Indra and I went to the same college. We both went to Point Loma. Go Crusaders or Sea Lions, whatever you're, <laughs> however old you are. Yeah, right? There's a sea lion. It's a weird, okay. We went to the same, we went to the same college, uh, but we never met when we were there. Um, and I knew her roommate, and her roommate knew me, um, but we didn't know each other. And in fact, a couple months ago, her, her roommate said, she texted her and said, you know, I still can't believe you're married to Jeff. <laughs> it's still kind of this like mind-boggling thing that you would choose this person <laughs> of all the people. And, and the reason for that, I think, is I was not, uh, I wasn't the easiest person to be around <laughs> as, as a college student. Um, I was pretty obsessed with the question of who I was going to be in this world. Uh, what was my purpose? What was my vision? What was my mission? And pretty wrapped up in the idea that I had to kind of have some reason to justify my existence. You know, I had to have this big calling on my life that I was kind of a hero just looking for my quest. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been around somebody like that, but that's not a very easy person <laughs> to just be around. And those those questions are a little bit different for me now. Um, you know, at the ripe old age of 32, uh, I've changed and shifted a little bit. And, and those questions are a little bit more about what is it for my community and for my family, right? What am I going to do for the people that I'm around, for the people that I'm committed to, for the people that I belong to and that belong to me? The question of my life's vision, mission, and purpose hasn't really changed, but the focus has shifted. The focus has shifted from me and myself to we and the people that I'm with. The question becomes, what am I going to do to enable and empower my community, my church, my family to be able to seek and to find those things which are most important? And maybe you found yourself in that kind of situation where your life stage sort of shifts and moves. The world doesn't look exactly as it used to. You go from being a parent with all the stress and the frustration and um, the the hair pulling out and all of that kind of stuff that goes into caring for kids um, to being a grandparent who just waltzes onto the scene and sprinkles chocolate and jelly beans on top of kids to solve every problem as if nutrition means nothing. Uh, <laughs> 
But we go, or maybe you're in this phase where you've gone from being kind of an adult child to now being a child parent who's caring for the ones that are now dependent on you in a new way. You're taking care of things you never had to take care of before. You're making decisions that you never had to make before. Maybe you're finally becoming competent at something that you've been working at for a long time. Or maybe you're losing some abilities that you've had for a long time. We move in it. Was that an amen, Rosalie? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We move in and out of these stages, right? We come in, we go out, we lose some things that we love, we, we pick up things that we did not, that we wish we didn't have to. I look around and a lot of days, um, I want to still be seeking and growing. I want to lock myself in my office and read some books and not have anyone call me uh, and not have my kids knock on the door. And I'll, I mean, I want to, I kind of long for those days of being able to just isolate myself and learn things. But I see at the same time, maybe like Moses on the plains of Moab, as he preaches this sermon Deuteronomy to his people, that we look across the river to the promised land. And we have this fragile little community. Maybe it's the fragile little community of this church, or I'm often thinking about the fragile little community of our family, of a mom and a dad and a couple kids and some friends who have, by God's grace, decided to journey with us. And I look over the river and I don't necessarily just see you know, a land of milk and honey, God's blessing, just ready to be poured out on us if we'll just go kind of pick it up. Instead, I look over the river and oftentimes I see a land full of Canaanites. People who are idol worshipers, people who don't understand what it is to follow Christ, people who are hypocrites and yet act as though they worship the true God. And when I'm in those moments, I no longer want to save the world like I did back when Indra didn't know me, but instead, I just want to save my family from the world. I know we all come into those moments at times. I mean, don't we all want to be a part of something that has a purpose? Whether it's our own lives or our families or our small groups, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we come alive when we are working for something, right? There's something in us that wakes up when we have a reason for being, when we've got a purpose, a vision, a mission, when we have somewhere to go. You want to leave a legacy, but as you grow and develop, you realize that legacy is not just about making sure people don't forget your name. The legacy that we are to leave is a legacy of love. It's about preserving the things that matter most. It's about a legacy that leads to deep communion and fellowship with God. And so what about Moses? His heart's desire, (coughs) excuse me, was to do just that for his people. The thing that he wanted, the thing that he loved, the thing that all of his life was oriented toward was to take this revelation that he had received from God on Mount Sinai and continued to receive as he led his people through the wilderness, to take that very revelation and to pass it on to his people Israel, to even kind of press it into their bones so that it was so deeply a part of their consciousness that no matter where they went, they would take 
that revelation with them. That in fact, the world would look at them and go, this people, this nation, this family is somehow different because something has been pressed into them in a new and different and unique kind of way. He wanted to take that pledge and that proof of God's presence, the Torah, the law, and make it a part of his people. And so as he wraps up his sermon here on the specifics of life in Israel, Moses commands them to carry out something special as they cross the river. This is Deuteronomy 27, 1-8. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I have commanded you today. Keep in mind, this is like 15 chapters worth of preaching that he's saying to remember. And on that day that you cross over the Jordan... To the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write them, write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you've crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones." You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And so as Moses lets his people know they're supposed to take these stones, set them up on Mount Ebal, which is this mountain just on the other side of the river, and then cover them in this plaster, and then take the law and and kind of press it into the plaster with their letter-pressing devices. I don't know, whatever they do to kind of write, to write the law on this plastered altar. And then on that altar, they're to make two kinds of offerings. The first is a burnt offering, and a burnt offering is what it sounds like. It's burnt, right? It's like when I barbecue. It's just like everything goes up in smoke to the Lord, right? There's nothing left over for people to eat. It's totally burnt, right? The second kind of offering that they're to make is a peace offering. And a peace offering is one that is then distributed to everybody in the community, right? So the burnt offering, nobody gets a bite except God. The peace offering is an offering that's made and then shared with everybody. And they are to feast in that place. You notice there are two parties in this relationship, in this covenant. The first party is who? It's the king. It's, It's the Lord, right? It's the divine king. We talked a little bit last week about how the ways that they are to offer their offerings are to show that God is himself their king, right? But the second way, the second offering that they're to make is, so God is going to eat, but also the people are going to eat. And it says, rejoice. They are to remember the goodness of God. They are to remember that God brought them out of slavery, that God brought them through this purposeless wandering, through all these years in the wilderness. They are to remember what it was to follow God in those difficult years in a way that even killed off an entire generation of Israelites. But now, they're not going to be wandering anymore. They're going to be coming into the promised land, which, 
as we know, is full of good things. Milk and honey, right? And if you're a shepherd in Moses' day, that's about as good as it gets. That's, that's cottage cheese, <laughs> right? Cottage cheese that's sweetened and full of fruit. That's like rich, rich food for a shepherd. <laughs> and the Canaanites and Egyptians, their world may have provided some short-term freedom, right? The gods of the Canaanites and the gods of the Egyptians promise not necessarily milk and honey, but they do promise stuff in the short term. They give us purpose for the night. They give us something for this week or for this season. But the gods of the Canaanites and the Egyptians, the gods of the people around them, won't give Israel their ultimate purpose. Because what we know is that those gods don't hold up. The gods of Ra or Baal or Molech or Dagon, and I hope you understand here that I'm talking about the gods of wealth and security and power and immortality that we even worship here now in our day. Those gods ultimately serve something else. They're about preserving and establishing me and my people and my family, me getting what I want out of the divine. But when I worship the Lord, it's not about me. When I worship the Lord, my purpose is not just for myself. My purpose becomes larger than myself. And so we see in the next couple of verses, then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commands and statutes, which I command you today. We are the people of the Lord our God. The Lord is not ours, we are his. He's chosen us and we belong to him. And if you notice the obedience to the law, and this is what Paul says in the New Testament, which is what's so beautiful, you know, go look at Ephesians 2. The obedience to the law is not so that God will save us. Our obedience, our good work, our doing good things in this world is not so that God will save us. It's because God already has. So Israel is already brought up out of Egypt. They're already brought through the Red Sea. They're already in the wilderness and at Mount Sinai. They've already been saved by the time they get the law. And God says, don't do these things so that I will save you. Do them because I already have. You do them in response to what has happened in your life. And as, so we are saved, right? We live a life of obedience. And then what comes out of that obedience is a life of communion, is a life of deep fellowship, is a life of unending riches because God himself is unending love. We are made for that fellowship. We are made to struggle and to labor and to help all of creation reflect his glory and sing his praises. And we are made also to sing those praises. So you see, that's what the covenant with God does. It doesn't save us, but it marks us out as saved. Except we know that our salvation doesn't come on Mount Ebal in an altar made of naturally, you know, unhewn stones covered in plaster with the law written on them. 
Our covenant comes from Mount Calvary, where a cross held a Savior who did not need to die. This is what Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, God did not require our strength before he gave up his son to be sacrificed for us. Instead, we are brought into this covenant by our faith, which leads us to obedience in the Savior, right? He says just before that, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that in Jesus, we are invited to the peace offering. That in Christ, the enmity that was between God and humans because of our sin is canceled because God has given himself, he has given his own son as the peace offering that, off, that brings us to the table. We are at peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's brought us into this grace, into this family called the church that's bound together by being in Christ, members of Christ, and so members of one another. We are a covenant chosen people. But we're a covenant and chosen people not only because of the Exodus, but because God has fulfilled the promise of the Exodus in his son, Jesus Christ. But just as Israel is required, therefore, to live obediently to the law, the church and Christians are therefore required to live obedient to Christ's law. And by being obedient to Christ's law, we come into fellowship and deep communion with God. We come into this family of grace that we call the church. Our destinies are bound up together because we have, like Israel on Mount Ebal, been reconciled to God by Christ. We do it as we receive Christ in faith. We do it as we are baptized into the body. And we do it as we live that out day by day, week by week. We don't do it on our own terms, but because he is Lord, we do it on God's terms. In Moses' day, the clearest picture of this revelation was the Exodus and the law, but in our day, we've been given this fuller picture in Jesus Christ. So, in John 4, when Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, you know what he says? The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Friends, we don't play this game of waiting for the day when God will finally reveal the truth. We don't sit around and go, boy, if only God would show us what he really means by this stuff. If only God would give us what we really need to be saved. If only God would give us the information that we really need to, to know what it is to be in him. If only I could really have full life in Christ. It's like, no, Jesus has been right in front of us saying, I am the truth and I am the way and I am the life. And all I'm asking for you to do is to reach out and enter into my life. The truth is already here. The problem is that not that God hasn't sent it, it's that we haven't opened ourselves up to it. That it didn't come on our terms and so now we want to get God to send us something different. 
Like, I don't really like how the Jesus thing worked out. Could you send a different Savior who lines up more with my personal philosophy and mission statement? That's how so many of us live our life. When we find somebody who tells us that Jesus is what we want Jesus to be, then we will actually live in this way. When we find a church who doesn't offend our conscience, then we will finally live in this way. You know, God has called us into this life, and he's given us everything we, know we need for life and salvation now and here. Maybe the truth for you today is to understand that God loves you and has died for you and has reconciled himself to you despite every horrible thing you've ever done. He loved you more than you were able to mess up. His love for you was and is greater and deeper and wider and higher than any sin. And he would and has gone to the ends of the earth even entering into his own creation and even suffering death and even suffering the most humiliating form of death, death on a cross. Going down even into the very depths of death itself so that you might be saved. Maybe. Or maybe you've heard that and you know that and you have grabbed onto that truth for yourself. And I hope that's true. What I've been wrestling with as we've walked through Deuteronomy is that maybe God is calling us into a new promised land. Maybe God is calling us into a new day of purpose and a vision and a mission. I don't know. You know this bridge? Anybody know what it is? That's Fair Oaks Bridge. That's Fair Oaks Bridge, the kind of footbridge over by sunrise. Um, and so, so this is over here, this is Fair Oaks, this is the Bluffs, and then this is Rancho Cordova, believe it or not. Um, and I love this picture because it's like this sense of coming from the kind of the wilderness, the plains of Moab that is Fair Oaks. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, but, but the point is not where the wilderness is. The point is what's on the other side, that God is bringing us into this place where we are now. This is what he says. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love when Paul does this kind of thing. It's like, you know, it doesn't, I can actually kind of track with him and follow him, because I, I struggle sometimes. Okay, but what does he say? That we rejoice in the hope that we have. Okay, then there's an arrow, good. All right, and then we rejoice in that hope even when it's suffering and difficulty. Maybe especially when it's suffering and difficulty. Why? Because we know that suffering and difficulty leads to endurance. Right, it leads to an ability to persevere. That we're going to be bigger, better, faster, stronger on the other side of this suffering. And that that leads to character. That somebody who has persevered difficulty is somebody with character. It's somebody who can stand up in the midst of trial. And that character produces hope. 
You get this kind of circle of hope? And then where does that hope lead us? Into the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts by his spirit. So we get into this kind of circle of hope. And that's the thing we want to pass on to the next generation. That's the thing that we want this community to take into this land that's full of Canaanites, that's full of danger, that's full of idol worshipers, that's full of misunderstandings about who God is that they would have the character to endure suffering in a way that holds out hope in the glory of God, because we're not going to get out of suffering. Even if you do it all right, your body falls apart. Even if your kids are wonderful, the world is terrible. Right? And even if the world is pretty good, they're still going to cancel that show that you love. Like, suffering is going to happen. And we've got to learn to persevere and to endure in it. Because the land of milk and honey, the promised land that God is talking about, is not a new car every year, and it's not a nicer house, and it's not a better retirement plan or a more powerful job. The land of milk and honey, the promised land, is not even more successful kids, although, boy, I want to have some successful kids. <laughs> they can take care of me. <laughs> right? The promised land is active participation in a loving and worshiping community of Christ that loves you back with the constant hope of deepening your glory, deepening your hope of the glory of God confirmed by the Spirit. Okay, an active participation in a loving and worshiping community that loves you back with the constant hope of deepening your hope of the glory of God. And that's confirmed by the Spirit. I got to tell you guys, these last two weekends, you guys probably didn't think it was that big of a deal. But I was just like in, I'm in like pastor heaven right now. Because <laughs> it's like last weekend, we were able to get everybody together and have like just this wonderful work day. We get stuff done around the church. It's just guys working, changing lights, throwing branches, places. And then, and then last night, we're able to kind of come together and just have a campfire and a bonfire out in the field. And there's nothing like, there's nothing super, you know, fancy about it. There's no fog machines. Um, we had a smoke machine, but it was an actual campfire, like a literal campfire smoke machine. But the point is that it was just community, people doing things together as a community, not because we're all the same, not because we all like the same things, but why? Because we're all committed to Christ together. And so this is where I kind of turn it back to you. That to live this life, this promised land life, only you, I can't talk you into it. Only you can turn and change your heart and say, I want holiness and I want Christian virtue above all else. And I don't just want it as a single moment in my life, but I want it as a direction that I am headed and that I'm going. And the way I think about it, I want to have a little bit more clarity here. So the way that I think about this is like this, okay? I, it's... I think about it as a triangle and a square. There's three virtues, three things in our life that hopefully get developed that are oriented toward God, right? They're from 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and what's the third one? Uh, that was pretty weak. What's the third one? Love. Love. Okay, cool, better. Yeah, I heard that voice, Chris. That's a nice baritone. That's good. All right. <laughs> so faith, we, faith, hope, and love, right? That these three things develop and grow in us and ultimately orient our life towards God. But and all of them are ultimately directed toward God.
But there are other virtues that we have. And if we are growing in Christ, if we are becoming mature Christians, I'm convinced that we have to have these virtues growing in us as well. And these are kind of classic old school. I didn't make these up, right? The first is justice, the sense of what is right. And that we're going to live our lives for what is right. Some people call this righteousness. It's the same kind of thing. Okay? Whoops, I skipped some slides. All right, I'll tell you what they are. Justice, right? Wisdom, courage, and temperance. Okay, that we're going to be a just people who care about what is right in, in terms of one another, right? So if you think the God-oriented virtues are kind of up and down, the neighbor-oriented virtues are horizontal. That we live with justice, that we live with courage, that we are going to do the thing that is right even when it's hard to do. We live with wisdom, which is to take all these complex and difficult and sometimes competing facts and understand how the right choice might make itself available in the midst of them. And then temperance. And I love the picture of temperance, that word temper, right? Like you temper steel. You take this thing that is iron and that's strong, but it's still got like some impurities and stuff in it, and you put it under heat, and you put it under pressure, and it gets, because of the heat and pressure which ought to break it, instead make it stronger, right? Just what Paul said in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance, which produces in character, which produces hope. That's the kind of community that I'm talking about, where when you become a part of this community, when we enter into this promised land, we are a community that is knit together by these virtues, that is raising one another up, where we are learning these virtues together. <coughs> so why, what do you want to put on today? What's the virtue that you need today? How are you going to help your family, develop one of these virtues. A complete Christian character, a mature disciple of Christ, is going to help other people develop those virtues as well as developing them themselves. And our promised land may not be a literal land, right? It may not be a zip code. It may not be a spot on the map. Our promised land is being able to deliver that legacy of love that leads to communion onto the next generation. Onto Grace, right? Onto Miriam and Peter and Zane and Miguel. That those kids would come up in these communities that have their arms wrapped around them, not just to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, although that's good, but to raise them up in the life that makes them the people that God envisions for them. But here's the thing, it also doesn't have to be with just a baby. <laughs> I don't care how old you are. God is calling you into this space. There's another small step that you can take. You can be a little bit more just. You can be a little bit more wise. You can be a little bit more courageous today than you were yesterday. And so we come to eat this meal here this morning. And it's a meal of reconciliation. The bread and the cup. They, it's, it's a meal that we eat just like the meal that Israel ate on the side of Mount Ebal. It's both a burnt offering in which everything is offered to the Lord, and it's a peace offering in which we are reconciled to one another. It's the meal that returns us to that covenant moment without repeating the sacrifice. And thank God he has made a way for us to come and meet with him today.
that he has by his spirit made himself present to us in his word and in his table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your goodness goes beyond what we could expect. Your goodness goes beyond what we deserve. So we pray, Lord, that as we come into this place to receive the bread and the cup today, that our hearts would be open to you. They'd be open to the calling that you place on our lives. They'd be open to receiving this covenant from you and to being more deeply knit into your life, into the life that we have only in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today for uh, listening through the sermon. I don't know if you were able to pick up on it, but this is kind of a um, kind of a vision sermon. Um, there was really a sense as I was preparing this and putting it together um, that that this is how one of the ways that I feel that God is really directing us to understand what it is that we do here at Cordova. Our mission, what we say, our vision statement. Um, kind of our slogan is to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ, right? To be disciples, to make disciples. And so the first challenge there is really to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that that centers around in many ways developing yourself um, or rather having Christ uh, develop in you the virtues um, that allow you to be a part of this loving community that we're talking about today. But second is to learn to make disciples. Um, to enable other people to follow Christ, to not only make that offer to people, um, but to be able to see other people grow, to be able to see your family, to be able to see your neighbors and your friends, those close to you, grow in those same virtues. And so I wanted to let you know that we're going to be starting next week, actually, um, on Sunday night at um, at 5 o'clock. We're going to be starting a group at the Panera Bread uh, on Zinfandel. And all we're going to do is walk through some of the basics um, of discipleship. We're going to talk about how to put your testimony together, what a testimony even is, what should be included in the way that you uh, share Christ with others. Um, and it's going to be a super practical, um, we're not going to read a book, although, you know, I have books for you if you want them. Um, but the goal really is to have this this very kind of practical um, approach to putting together uh, an understanding of what it is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in in this world that we find ourselves in. Um, so there'll be two, three, four takeaways, things for you to do, and we're going to meet the second and the fourth Sunday of every month. The second and fourth Sunday of every month at Panera Bread on Zinfandel in Rancho Cordova um, at five o'clock on Sunday. So you can come grab a coffee, grab a tea, um, grab something to eat, and we will kind of sit and, and share with one another on some of these topics. So thanks for being with us. God bless you as you go about your week. Mm-hmm.